Reading from the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> At that time, <clears throat> Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were, were hungry. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. His disciples were hungry. And when they began to pluck the heads of grain and eat, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful for them to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, well, then you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He left that place and entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Well, suppose one of you has only one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The word of the Lord. Apologies for my coughing fit as I just walked up here. That was good timing. <clears throat> but my name is Brennan, and I'm, we're so grateful to be here, me and my family, my kids, uh, Freddie and Margaret Ann, who were joyously uh, enjoying the children's sermon and now are somewhere else, um, probably being well-behaved. Uh, this is my wife, Catherine, uh, who, who came down here as well, and we all just love St. Simon's so much. The first time any of us ever came here was in 2015, actually to, to participate in a, an anniversary weekend for St. Simon's Presbyterian at the invitation of Alan Dyer. And we l fell in love with the place. It is beautiful here. We love the live oaks and the Spanish moss, and we love the way the town is even laid out and the beaches and so on. Uh, Freddie yesterday, uh, just looking at the way that the tides changed the, the formation of the beach, uh, he said it's a whole world out there, uh, and it really is. Uh, but in any event, thank you so much for inviting us and our family here to enjoy this weekend with you all. Now, as for me, I love my work, but as a biblical scholar, I am often in the awkward position of teaching about things that I don't always exhibit in my own life. For example, Scripture tells us to love God and our neighbor always. But anybody who follows me around for more than a few minutes knows uh, that I don't always do this. But it's when I talk about the Sabbath that I feel personally a real pinch of guilt. The Sabbath, that interruption in the week the command to observe a regular time of rest when there is no work. Catherine and I both have jobs during the week. We also both work at churches on Sunday, and uh, we have two young children. So things pile up, don't they? The Sabbath, that interruption of the week when there is no work. Well, we are commanded to offer that same rest not only to our families, but to those who work for us, to those vulnerable people in our midst, and even to our animals. In the Ten Commandments, it says, now, I go to church every Sunday, of course, but then again, I work at one, so it's not the weekly worship that makes me worry when I hear about the Sabbath, but no, it's the rest. 
The Hebrew word Shabbat, which we say in English is Sabbath, means to cease doing something. And it can actually mean anything, stopping doing anything. But the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments is a day to stop working for God. And we are told that God wants it that way. Many of us can't even imagine that. How in the world could we stop working for a minute? Christians today tend to think that the Sabbath is something like an individual task, something I have to do. Yet another thing to add to my to-do list, make sure to show up to church between 11 and 12 and maybe do some things after that. Well, maybe some other Christians who think about the Sabbath think of it as kind of a break, but also a break that I should do, I don't know, some holy things on or something. I should make it count, right? I should probably make this a great practice. Maybe I should do some things that will help improve my productivity. Uh, Maybe I could multitask a little bit, take some pictures of me doing some some things on my Sabbath and post it to my Instagram. That would really look impressive, maybe boost some of my followers. Um, But no, as we're told in both times that the Ten Commandments appear, by the way, Ten Commandments appear twice, right? Once in Exodus 20, as Moses is receiving the law on Sinai, and once in Deuteronomy, or the second telling of the law, that's what that book means, the second telling, when Moses retells the law to a new generation that's about to enter into the Promised Land, a generation that wasn't there at Sinai. Both times the Ten Commandments appears, a little bit differently each time, but the Sabbath is repeated. In both times, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the reasons given for the Sabbath aren't primarily about me. It's definitely not about maximizing my productivity or that I rest so that I can work harder the next day. The Sabbath is instead seen as a communal time when we all stop working, even the most vulnerable among us, the ones who can't afford to stop working, the ones who are indebted and have even become the property of others, translated in a very nice way, manservant and maidservant. That's slavery um, in uh, both uh, Deuteronomy uh, and in Exodus, especially those people. In Deuteronomy 5, God tells the Israelites to keep the Sabbath holy. Holy meaning set apart, different, and make it holy especially by not working. And then God gives the reason for this strange request. So in Deuteronomy, the reason, and this is going to be different in Exodus, but in Deuteronomy, the reason that's given is, remember, God says, remember, you were once a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out. Therefore, you are commanded to keep the Sabbath day. We are here in this story reminded of the amazing story of the Exodus, when the Hebrew people were enslaved, and then God intervened and set them free. So if we don't create space for others in our world to rest, especially those who are vulnerable and poor, then we have become the new Pharaoh. And that might remind us a bit about how God treats Pharaohs in this world. We must remember our own story of salvation and liberation, that the things that we have are gifts from God, all of them. We must make time to honor and cherish those things and our own lives. We must observe them and we must make the the space and the room and the possibility for all others in our midst to enjoy that too. It might be strange that you had a, uh, it might seem strange, at least to some folks, that you had a uh, work day on a Sabbath weekend, uh, anniversary weekend dedicated to thinking about the Sabbath. Um, But no, actually, I think that's really important. That work Saturday that you all took part in, uh, more than 70 of you uh, took part in an entire work day in order to try to help other people have the kind of life in which they might rest. And I think that is truly important. That is living Deuteronomy 5 to the extreme. This might sound like a burden, a harsh command, but Scripture instead presents it as a gift, as grace itself. In the book of Exodus, this is the other version of the Ten Commandments, the first time it was given, we we find that the Ten Commandments mostly agree in these two versions, but actually they don't completely agree. That is, Moses changes things a bit, and one of the things he changes 
that is very recognizable is the reason for the Sabbath commandment. They are different. That is the Ten Commandments. When you ever see them written up there, you've got to either have the Exodus 21 or the Deuteronomy 5 one because you can't have both. So in the Exodus version, which mostly agrees, the biggest difference is that fourth commandment. And, in, and remember, in Deuteronomy's version, the Sabbath was the reason for it was that you were once a slave and that God wants you to have rest because you deserve it, but also because your neighbors deserve it, whoever they are. Well, in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20, if we think about the story there, just five chapters ago, they had been freed from slavery. They didn't need to be reminded that they were once slaves. They were living that reality. And in fact, it's hard for them to imagine anything else at that point, I would, I, would, I would wager. But it happened to them quite recently. So that God says, when God says, I'm going to give you a Sabbath, God gives the reason for it as I created the world. God reminds them of Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, God takes the seventh day as a day of rest. And it consecrates it, sets it apart to be holy as a, as a day to stop work. It's not told there that we should stop work, but God reminds people in Exodus about how that happened. I stopped working after the sixth day, and I made some space for myself to relax and enjoy the good things that I had made. And that's why I want you to do it too, God says, to the Hebrew slaves who had just been freed. God reminds them of Genesis 1 and 2, where people are made in the image of God. This oppressed people who had probably been told their whole lives that they were nothing but dirt. And God reminds them of a story where God took dirt and shaped it and formed it and blew God's spirit into it and set it as a king and queen over all of creation, made in the image of God. And that is why you take a day of rest. You are of infinite worth, Exodus 20 says. You deserve regular rest just like God does. So here, God uses the Sabbath to reframe the Hebrews' understanding of themselves. No longer are you dirt. You are mine. You are of infinite worth. So if you think of both of those Ten Commandments is kind of a stereoscopic vision. If you see them both at once, it's a call to remember the past and a call to reframe the present. We must be able to look at each other and see not exploitable commodities, but to see our neighbor, whoever they are, as a wondrous mirror of our cosmic maker. Of course, this is difficult sometimes, but we are nevertheless called to interrupt the ceaseless cycle of work periodically to take stock of what a marvelous, pure gift our very life is and this beautiful, good world that God has created for us. So we use this interruption to recognize also the infinite dignity of our neighbors, their infinite worth, especially those who are assumed to be worthless during the work week. This is, I think, an attempt to build a framework of compassion into the very bones of our social structure, the very fabric of timekeeping itself. And this is a gift. It's grace. But if you read the commandment carefully, you see, okay, you're supposed to consecrate it, set it aside as holy for God. I guess we pray to God, we worship God during that time. I hope we all you know, have this as a regular part of our Sabbath practice. You're here nonetheless, so I guess that's a, a good sign. But also thinking individually of setting aside time for us to think and reflect and pray, to be grateful, to name the things we're grateful for, to name our deep sadnesses too. That's a part of the Sabbath. But what else do you do with that holy time? You can only pray for so long, right? I don't know if you're like me, but after about an hour, I say I'm done. So what do you do with the other 23 hours of the day? Well, the Bible's not very clear about that. It's left open. 
You're just supposed to not work. The future of this day is yours to form, to shape. It's ours to shape and form as a community. What do we want to do with this time? Which is a probably a good thing since the Bible speaks to all people in all times and all places across the world. If it gave us one thing to do, some people might not understand it or they might be too bored. But nonetheless, it's given to us as this gift. What do we want to do with this time? How do we stop working? It's a call for us really to ponder, to wonder. And that might be the point of it all. And you might be thinking, how in the world could I even do this? I can't take a whole day off work or a whole day off of my responsibilities. We don't get paid for all the work that we do, right? But we take care of other people, take care of ourselves, take care of things around us and so on. How do we actually stop that? Well, maybe you've only got an hour or two. Or maybe you've only got an afternoon or an evening. Maybe that's a place to start. But to start to think, what gives me rest? What for me doesn't count as work? And can I start there and actually block this time off as time that is holy, that is consecrated to God? For me and for my family, a good uh, vision of this or a good kind of metaphor for this was this last Friday. So we drove down on Thursday to St. Simon's, took a day off of work. Uh, Usually I work Fridays, but I didn't work this Friday. And we went to the beach and we just enjoyed the waves and the ocean and the surf and the sand We enjoyed each other. We enjoyed our company. And that was holy. Of course, not every day could be like that, right? Maybe if you live at St. Simon's, it can, I guess. But for me, it can't, right? But for the other six days, of course, they're set aside for work, at least part of them. But we've been given this commandment that our world should be structured so that everyone might have a chance to stop, to pray, to sing praises, pause and wonder, and to enjoy our family and friends. So give yourself that gift this week. Keep it holy. At this moment, the most precious commodity in our economy, I think, the thing that the largest global corporations are vying for, at least, is our attention. Social media influencers and politicians alike are striving to capture as many eyes as possible. And I'm a part of this, too. I have my smartphone in my pocket. And everyone now knows that clicks means cash. But we're products of that. And our fragmented attention can lead to a chaotic life where we overlook the things that matter to us most. Just like it's often remarked that no one says, I wish I had worked more on their deathbeds, I assume the next generation will never say, I wish I had looked at social media more. Instead, people in their last moments have a chance to focus and realize the things in their life that were of ultimate worth. And people always say, their friends, their family, the beauty of this world, our awesome God. And the Sabbath is a holy interruption into the midst of our chaotic lives to ask us to focus so that we gain this clarity on a weekly basis rather than only once at the end of our lives. And this holy interruption gives us a chance to reform our future too, our past, our present, and our future, to imagine a new and different world where people might enjoy the blessings of God. If you're trapped in thoughts that the future can never change, that you're stuck in a rut, that your debts will always overwhelm you, that your grievances are intractable, If you're perhaps convinced that you are stuck in sin, then the Sabbath is a constant reminder that there is indeed release from sin. There is a time of healing. There is freedom from even things like debt. There will be a time when you will be recognized for the glorious gift to the world that you are. To remember the past, to reframe the present, and to reform our futures. Scripture names these as the gifts given through the Sabbath commandment. And as Jesus teaches us in the gospel story we read this morning, Matthew 12, itself a sermon on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a time to heal, 
to mend, to save. I'm not sure if he caught it, but in the Old Testament reading for today, in the first verse you heard from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 3, Moses uh, said something that wasn't true. You can call it a fib, if you like, twisting the truth, or a lie even. It's there. Like any good liar knows, if you say something with confidence, it sounds like truth. So Moses is speaking the words of the book of Deuteronomy to that new generation. They're on the edge of the promised land. They're about to go in and take the land. They're about to finally enjoy this land of milk and honey after being freed. This is the new generation that comes after the death of the old generation, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. No one listening to the book of Deuteronomy, except for Moses and Joshua and Caleb, those three folks get to go in. Well, Moses doesn't get to go in, but they're all there at least. Those are the three folks who were there from the previous generation. No one else was there at Sinai. There was a different group of people alive back then. And to this new group of people who were not at Sinai, Moses gives the bizarre statement. The Lord did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with us, ourselves, these ones here today, all of us who are living. Moses says that to the people who were not there at Sinai. The ancestors actually were the ones who were there, but Moses says it wasn't them, it was you. It's like me telling you, let me tell you, 73 years ago when this church was founded, it wasn't them, it was you back then. Everyone here, alive today, the ones here in this room now, that was us. It's an ungrammatical mess in Hebrew, actually. Whenever I translate it, I translate it differently because it doesn't make any sense. But in part, it doesn't make sense because it builds up this strange group of words that we call deictics or shifters. The text is written in this clever way. It's actually using a trick of language, like a loophole in language. It uses all these words like here, today, now, us, which sounds so normal to us because we use them so much. But have you ever thought about this? What does the word here mean? What's the definition of the word here? There actually is no definition for it, right? It's just what... Whenever you say that, it means the place that you are where you say it. What about now? What's the word now mean? It just means the time where you are when you say that. Or us. What's the definition of us? Well, the people who are around when you say us. These words actually shift their meaning based on when and who picks them up and says them. It's kind of a mystery of language, but also it's how language is useful to us. It gives us the ability to appropriate language and step into it and use it for our own purposes in different times and places. And Moses uses this magic trick to get us to step back in time. It wasn't your ancestors who were there at Sinai. No, it was us. And when I say those words right now, it's not just like Moses saying those words to the ancestors who weren't there thinking about their own ancestors. No, now it means us. I'm going to read that again for you. Chapter 5, verse 3 of Deuteronomy. The Lord did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with us, ourselves, these ones here today, all of us who are now living. That's, That's said to you. And when our generation passes away, the next generation comes and picks up those words, that'll be them standing in that here, today, now, and us. And this is the task of the law. This is the task of Deuteronomy. And Jesus doesn't say to throw away the law. He says to do this very thing with the law as he did it in his own day and age. And he said, in my time, the Sabbath law will have to look different. So in our time, taking Jesus' cue, 
Our Sabbath might have to look a little bit different too than it did for those ancient Israelites, but the principle remains the same. That we represent and respect the image of God in our own lives. And we recognize that in our neighbor. That we reframe our thoughts about ourselves. That we remember our past and we remember our salvation with a mighty outstretched arm that God has delivered for us. And that we reframe our own future. So there's some uh, pretty interesting things also that have to do with the Sabbath uh, that, that aren't in the book of Deuteronomy or, or in Exodus. They're in everyone's favorite book, Leviticus. I know that you uh, probably do devotionals in Leviticus every single day. Um, so you know this already, but I'll remind you. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 25, there's some really interesting things that happen with the Sabbath. The Sabbath is actually used to talk about weeks of years, every seventh year. And every seventh year is a Sabbath year. And on that special year, you're supposed to give the land rest because God made the land too, and the land is important. We need to look after it and actually give it a time to rest too. And we also need to think about every week of weeks of years. That is every seven times seven years, every 49 years. And Leviticus 25 tells us that this is called the Jubilee year, the year after the seven times seven years, the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, where people are set free from their debts where people can return to their old family homes and find it welcoming once again, where people are given the ability to produce once again, even if their family in the past has frittered it away, and where they are given a sense of welcoming and belonging. These jubilee laws, these sabbatical laws, you can think about them in terms of treating space and place as being important too. And if you think about this congregation, you all are almost at a jubilee and a half. At 75 years. You're at 73 right now, and to prepare for your jubilee and a half, you all have decided to give this space a rest too. To mark this occasion, you're giving your sanctuary a sabbatical year, that it might be restored, and thus continue to host this congregation and its Sabbath practices for many more years. Now, many biblical scholars point out that interest in the Sabbath and observance of it seems to have grown exponentially after the destruction of Solomon's temple, when the Israelites were taken into exile. That is to say, Sabbath seems to have kind of undergone a revolution after the space was gone. This is probably because Jews at the time thought that their practices might vanish. After all, it was a countercultural practice in the ancient world. Telling slaves they get to rest in Babylon wasn't popular. But not only did it catch on, it gave the world the seven-day week that ends in rest that you and I enjoy today, thank God, which was unheard of before the Jews spread it in their diasporic wanderings. And while the temple lay in ruins, holy time replaced holy space as the primary site of Jewish and Christian worship. So during this sanctuary sabbatical year, may you all be blessed with a renewed sense of God's radical gift of holy time for you to enjoy, even as you are displaced from your holy space. And may it be a time of remembering your past, reframing your present, and forming new futures. Amen.